0: Yes, good morning, everyone. Boy, it's great to be with God's people. I was talking to somebody about that over the weekend, and uh, as we were sharing our time together in our prayer seminar, we were saying, and I'll say this to you, that uh, when we have things going on, please just come. uh, Be a part of what God is doing. Uh, That's the Lord's plan. You know, He really didn't make us to isolate ourselves. I know that's the great temptation. uh, But please come be a part of what God is doing. When we have uh, times like this. You may know the Bible better than anybody. And you may have it all memorized. And you don't need to hear anything from God at all ever again. But come encourage us. okay? And that will be a great blessing to each of us. So uh, we, are, we are blessed uh, to have a church. And to have a church family that cares about the things of God. Well let's pray. And uh, get our minds into the message here now. And we'll see what the Spirit has for us. Father, we thank you for uh, so much this weekend. We thank you for uh, Bob and Jim and and the Praying Life Seminar. Lord, prayer should be something that should be second nature to us, but we often really struggle with it, as we found out and worked our way through some of that. And as we sit here this morning, it's often heard on people's lips that, uh, boy, don't call on me to pray because I'm not a good prayer. Lord, often we just grade ourselves in erroneous ways. We thank you, Father, that you have given to us your Son, that we might have direct access to your kingdom and to your throne room. So we come to you this morning looking into your word, asking that you'd give us wisdom and, and clarity of understanding, as Pastor Scott was just praying, and that we would hear truly from you today. Thank you for your word that gives us strength and boldness to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as you might have guessed, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be there for a while. So those of you who are our guests, you could probably come back in about three years and we'll still be in the Sermon on the Mount. We move a little slowly, but that's all right. We'd rather move too slowly than too quickly because there's so much richness in the Word of the Lord, right? There's so much to learn and so much to know. We don't want to skip anything. We may never get the opportunity to go through it like this again. And so we want to glean from it everything that we possibly can while we're going through it the first time. So our series is the foundational truths from the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're studying now. And specifically in this section of Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at Jesus' words on Scripture, Holy Scripture, the importance of Holy Scripture. If you're listening at all to the culture and to the church life in the culture, in many ways Scripture is kind of becoming a, um, well, I can take it or leave it. I'm saying it that way. Nobody would really say it that way as a Christian, but often we're finding that there are teachings that are out there that are somewhat anti-biblical and uh, not really teaching the clarity of the word. Not that we have a one-up on anybody, but we certainly believe that this is the foundation for everything. And that's what Jesus was teaching. It's not our words. It's not our thoughts. We're not saying that because we're Laurel Hill Baptist Church. We're saying that because this is what our Lord taught us. And that's what we're seeing in this in this section. Now, just a, a quick review to help us get our minds back in gear from the week. As we're working our way through Matthew, we've learned in this section that, again, Jesus holds the law, specifically he's been teaching on that, the law and the prophets, to be the foundation for life. And that the is very purposeful there. You should highlight that in your mind. So if scripture was foundational for our Lord himself, it should be foundational for us, Right? That would just make logical sense. And last week we learned that there were really three reasons according to what Jesus has given us in these first few verses, and that is because it's eternal. The Word of God is absolutely eternal. It's going to remain until God accomplishes all of his purpose for the Word itself. And we've learned that over and over throughout Scripture, but Jesus is reiterating this. Secondly, Jesus said every single part of it is critical. It's all important. Every King James Version, jot and tittle, or the New American Standard, or whatever translation you might have other than King James, is the smallest letter of the language of Hebrew, the smallest stroke, and you you can attribute that to Greek as well, as we've learned that the New Testament is just as inspired as the Old. Jesus says every part of it is critical, and I showed you some of those illustrations. Every little stroke of the pen is essential from God's mind. Thirdly, we learn that all of that because it accomplishes God's purpose. Aren't we excited about that? I mean, really, think about that as the Lord has given to us our instruction book for life, that he has given to us everything that's necessary for us to live a life that's peaceful and holy and just in this world. And I, for one, really am appreciative of that. So now today I've titled the message, Why Every Believer Must Obey the laws of God. Why every believer must obey the laws of God? Now, as I say that, and you've been paying attention well over the last couple of weeks, you're probably asking yourself, why do I need to obey the laws of God? I thought they were all fulfilled. And that'd be a good question. Jesus certainly did fulfill all the laws. And you remember we've talked about the three parts to those, and those were the judicial, the ceremonial, and the moral laws. They're combined all in the Old Testament. We've thrown out the traditions that Jesus threw out. But we're looking specifically at those three things. Jesus fulfilled the judicial law when Israel rejected him as king when they crucified him. He became the fulfillment of all that was necessary in order to create a nation for himself. That was purposeful on God's part. But then when they rejected him, there was no king anymore anymore from God and there was no nation really anymore in the eyes of God in that sense and so all of what God had given to Moses to establish a nation was fulfilled it was done the king was gone which opened praise the Lord for us gentiles a way for uh, to be a part of his kingdom And so God has been very gracious to us. Now just so we don't think that Israel is left out of this picture. If you know the scriptures. And Paul talks about this much in the book of Romans. And in other places that one day God is going to restore the nation of Israel back to the kingdom. But that will be those people who have become believers in Christ while on this earth. Before the rapture. They'll eventually be a part of the kingdom. And then those who will survive the tribulation as we've seen in the book of Revelation. Those people who are Jewish and become followers of Christ will enter into the kingdom that God has prepared. And that has been all foretold by the prophets over the centuries. And so Jesus fulfilled the judicial laws. He fulfilled the ceremonial laws when he gave his life sacrificially on the cross. His death became the ultimate sacrifice that all of the sacrificial system pointed to. He became The epitome of sacrifice, which opened the door to all Jews and all Gentiles, that's us, to present ourselves before the Lord. We don't need a mediator anymore. Aren't you glad for that? We were just talking about that this weekend. Bob and I were kind of joking about some things and just saying, aren't we so thankful that we don't have to put on the holy garb anymore and the breastplate and and go through all the ritual system throughout our days? to have some open door to us by God, but we now have direct access to him because of what Christ has done. He took all of the sins of mankind upon himself and appeased the wrath of God against sin. And so anybody now who has a surrendered heart to the Lord and sees what Christ has done, has accepted him as Lord and Savior, has uh, become a part of God's kingdom and will enjoy the kingdom of heaven forever. And praise the Lord for that as well. I hope that's you today. I hope you're here today confidently saying, yes, I know that Christ is my Savior and I'm going to be with him one day in eternity. I hope you're not living your life wondering whether you're a part of his kingdom. And that's the whole reason Jesus came, to give us the passageway, to give us the right, to give us the understanding of who he is. In all of this, though, as Hebrews would go, or the Hebrews, I'm saying, don't need the ceremony anymore. Now we come freely and we worship the Lord. And Jesus fulfilled all the moral law. He kept all the commandments perfectly. And remember we said, if you remember the slides, that this was foundational to everything. All of the ceremonial laws, all the judicial laws were built upon the moral code of God, and that's what was given in the Ten Commandments. And so all of these things were fulfilled. The judicial law, the ceremonial law, and the moral laws were fulfilled. And so you might be back to your question now asking, okay, so if all of that's fulfilled, what's there for us to keep? Why are you bringing this up? And what's Jesus really talking about here in chapter 5, if he fulfilled it all? I mean, if Jesus has done the work to save me, and as we know now, according to Romans 6, 14, the Spirit of God lives in our hearts, what is there to keep as far as laws go? Well, Jesus is going to answer that here in verse 19. So let's stand together and let's read verses 17 through 19 of Matthew chapter 5. And we have folks stand in honor of the reading of the word of the Lord as we believe it's authoritative and it's from the mouth of God himself. We've already covered verses 17 and 18. Today is 19. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. That's what we are just talking about. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then, and this is for today, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Now, before we get into this, let's just back up for a minute and talk about our world. Let's get a picture, a bird's eye view here, of the world and its belief in keeping laws. If you follow law at all, if you follow uh, the newspapers, you follow anything at all, you know that our world, our sinful nature, really, really, really struggles with anybody telling it what to do, right? I remember years ago that when I worked in manufacturing, there was a guy that was uh, Catholic by faith, and he said to me one day, he said, Bruce, you know the greatest thing about being a Catholic is I can go live it up in this world and do everything I want to do and all i got to do is go to confession and the priest will forgive me and I can go back to do whatever I want to do. Well, that was his concept of keeping the law. That's a wrong mindset. And I think that mindset is what's really begun to take over the world. I mean, people today don't believe they need to follow anybody's laws. That's part of the problem that we're seeing so much today. And the reason they feel that way, again, as I mentioned a second ago, that's because of the sinful heart. Sin does not want any constraints on it. Now, I know many of you have heard this from me many times before, but we just really need to keep going over this because until we start living this life perfectly, we need to keep hearing about this. We need to keep checking our heart. Sin wants to be free from any kind of constraint. It wants to be fully in charge of itself. That's why you get in arguments. That's why you have issues with each other. That's why we have relational issues. That's why we agree and disagree on things because we don't like constraints. We believe in our minds that we have the right answer all the time, and I'm talking about simply humanity. Sadly, even the the whole meaning behind freedom in our world, and I'm talking about not just America, but in our world, in the minds of some is to just live it up, as I was talking about my friend from years ago. Do what you want, and nobody's going to tell you any differently. And, and we have courtrooms full of people like that. We have prison systems full of that, if you want to take it to the nth degree. But it's even on a smaller level than that. Here's the issue. When there is no plumb line of right and wrong, and that's that little thing that swings and hangs down in the carpenter's building situation, if there is no plumb line of standard between right or wrong, everything goes, right? I mean, everything goes. Everybody does what they want to do, however they want to do it, whenever they want to do it. Again, if you follow the news, uh, I was thinking about thinking through this this week of this young lady who was murdered up in Central Park, who was the graduate from St. Anne's here. And if you follow that story at all, uh, you know in the minds of those young people, that 14-year-old boy, that group of people set out with the intention of finding someone to rob and to kill. That was their intention. That was their purpose. Now tell me, where does that come from? That comes from the sinful heart. Everything out of the sinful heart. We see it in the schools today. We're seeing children more and more with little discipline. Because schools and systems are afraid that they're going to take away freedoms. I and mean, that's kind of the mindset here. Oh, no, We've got to let little Johnny and little Sally have their freedoms. They may not say it that way, but that's really what it comes down to. Can't discipline anymore, can't put constraints on anybody because that's what true freedom is. Well, again, if there is no constraint, the sinful heart is going to do whatever it wants to do. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Abortion, and I'm always very sensitive to this, ladies and men, particularly because I know how sensitive a subject this is. But let me just say this from a biblical sense, and that is abortion is is centered on freedom. In other words, The person will think, I need to be free from my constraints and nobody should tell me what I should do. And that freedom to choose becomes a matter of wanting freedom so much that it will kill the life of another human being in order to keep itself from having constraints on it. Do you see how this fleshes itself out? If you're a sports fan, you've been following the the news, you know that the Houston Astros have been in a lot of trouble for sign stealing. When I first saw that, I thought, what signs are they stealing, like locker room signs, that kind of thing? Then it dawned on me, no, they're talking about the signs that the pitcher's giving to the catcher, right? And somehow they've been able to acquire some of these things, won't go into all of that. But that's not the point. The point is, I was watching the ticker at the bottom of ESPN the other night, and they were talking about, uh, one man made a comment, and he said, here's the deal. He said that it was better for them to steal the signs because the payoff is better than getting caught for stealing the signs. I mean, that's just the human heart. And none of this stuff really should alarm us. It does because we hear about these things, but but in the recesses of our sinful minds, there's far darker things that occur because that's just what a sinful mind does. In fact, if you've ever heard the term existentialism, that's what this is really all about. That's kind of the definition. It's the idea that people are free to do as they choose, that you should let them be free. Give them everything that they want based on what their own belief system is. It's founded, though, on the concept that basically people are good. And I have friends of mine that believe that. I know people that have thought that for centuries, that human the human heart is basically good and it has to be taught to be bad. But that is not what the scriptures teach. And we're basing our lives off of the authority of God's word, right? So look with me just at a couple of scriptures that should be on the screen for you. If not, you can just jot them down. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, Jeremiah says that the heart is so bad that no one can really figure it out. Romans 3, 10, As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And that was taken directly from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As Paul wrote the, to the letter, the letter to the churches. And of course the famous one in the beginning of the Romans wrote, if you're witnessing or evangelizing someone, it's, God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Beloved, listen, the heart is not naturally good. The heart is naturally evil. And because of that, it will do naturally sinful things. And when it is left to itself, it will pull out all the stops. When there is no constraint on it, it will have at whatever it wants to have. And it will choose evil every time. When it is free from what is good. The truth is, we have to have constraints. We have to have constraints because we live in such a wicked wicked world and, and wicked people fill up the world and do wicked things. And so we really shouldn't be surprised when we hear stories of things happening, how could that happen? Why would somebody do that? It's pretty basic. The human heart is wicked. This is why mom and dads have to stay on top of their kids, Right? God gives us parents. He gives us grandparents and on and on to keep the constraints in our hearts because we will surely go wild if we don't. So let's go back to the question now then. Okay, so understand that. I get it. You made your point. Why do I need to keep the laws of God? I mean, it's true. We're under grace, right? So we're not bound to the conformity that God has once given to the Hebrews. So what is Jesus talking about here? Number one... I'm just going to give you a couple today because Jesus never taught us to forsake the laws. That's a good enough reason. He never taught us to forsake the laws. Let me give you an illustration from the book of Jude. I love Jude because it's such a simple letter. If you were here some years ago, we did our summer study through the letter of Jude. And Jude starts out by saying, I just wanted to write to us, to you, About our salvation. Kind of like a pastor standing up and saying, like I did this morning, isn't it beautiful that we have this God who loves us and we can just rejoice in our time together and the gracious things that God has done for us? That's how he starts out in verse 3. Notice this Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. You hear these words? Once for all, handed down to the saints. And here's the issue Jude's writing about. For certain persons, and we're not sure who those are, just some religious leaders, have crept in unnoticed. He's talking about the church here, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, and here's the part that I want you to see, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. In other words, they deny, he says, our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What is Jude saying? He's saying there are people who believe that we are now under grace and so we can do as we please. We don't need to have constraints on us. But notice what Jude says to that. He says, or the Spirit rather, says, by living that way and believing that and thinking that, you're denying the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a direct denial of who Christ is. You cannot live as a Christian and not obey what Jesus has commanded. That denies the very foundation of everything He is and who He is. And so we've got to get that clear in our minds. Just as the laws have purpose in the land, so does God have laws that are to govern our hearts. And we're not to deny him of anything that he says, right? Okay, so which laws of God am I to keep then? All of them. You say, wait a minute, all of them? Which ones are we really talking about here? Well, we've already determined that the judicial laws and the ceremonial laws are gone. So we're really specifically talking about the moral laws. So anytime we're talking about law now, let's focus on the moral aspects of these things. Okay? We have a great obligation. Look at verse 19 again one more time. We're going to keep coming back to this. This is back to our text. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's some interesting things in here, but let's break it apart And look at this for a piece at a time. You see the words in the very beginning of verse 19. Whoever then. Well that's similar. And your book. Your Bible may say this. That's similar to using the word therefore. And so Jesus is really just continuing his thought. You've heard the statement. The therefore in scripture is put there for whatever it was there for. That's really a reference back to what he was just talking about. And everything that I've just been saying this morning. Is a reference to the authority of scripture. So Jesus has built his case saying scripture is the authority for life. Some of it has been fulfilled, but the moral parts live on. They have not been completed and that would stand a reason because humanity is still around. In fact, Jesus will say it will never pass away, that's his word, until all things are perfectly accomplished. That's what we saw last time. So it has to be important, right? And it must be so important that we are to obey it. And the whoever, and this is very interesting, and this is where we come in as churches, as church people, as God's people, The whoever is referring to all believers, everyone who follows Christ, everyone who names Christ as their Lord. And the reference, the least of these commandments, refers to the ones that are the least important. That's why the Lord says it that way than some of the others. In other words, something like don't steal, as serious as that is, is not as high on God's priority of breaking commandments as killing somebody. But James is going to tell us, and we're going to look at this in just a second, to break any of God's laws is a violation of all the laws. Notice in James chapter 2. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of what? Of it all. He's guilty of it all. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, talking about God, has said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. James just given an illustration there. Pretty basic, pretty elementary, pretty fundamental. In other words, it doesn't matter, even though there are lesser... Laws in comparison to break any of them is a violation of breaking all of God's laws. And again, we're talking about, in our case, the moral laws. And Jesus gave an interesting parallel, or excuse me, a parable to help us to understand what he's talking about here. So let's go to Luke chapter 12 and begin in verse 37. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Now, obviously, in the context, he's talking about the coming again of Christ. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so. Now, watch. Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Now that's an interesting answer to Peter's question. I think Jesus is taking the long road to say, Peter, you just listen to me a minute and you figure out who I'm talking about. Blessed is that slave in verse 33, uh, 43 whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted him, of him they will ask all the more. Now, to be clear, here's what we need to see from this. I wanted to make a point out of this, not because of necessarily the perfect context as it fits with what we're studying today, but to understand that in God's economy, if you will, in his kingdom, there are degrees of punishment and blessings. God is a just God. He does not treat, even though it's a violation of his commands, whatever it might be, does not treat every violation exactly the same. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Now in this Luke passage, he's specifically talking about the differences between believers and unbelievers. But now we've just learned in Matthew 5 that there's a difference also in the kingdom. There's degrees of blessings in the kingdom. Okay, so let's take a look at that, which is second. This is our second point this morning. We are to keep the laws because there are both positive and negative consequences for either keeping or not keeping them. And that's what Jesus has said. Look back at verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the what? Kingdom of heaven. Notice this. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the what? The kingdom of heaven. Okay, very interesting. Notice that Jesus is saying here, there are two people groups in my kingdom. There are those who don't keep the laws, and again we're talking about the moral laws. And then there are those who do keep the laws. And the consequences for those who don't keep the laws are to be called the least in the kingdom of God. The consequences for those who do keep the laws are to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what does he mean? Well, let's break it down here even further. Annuls is a word that means to loosen, okay, to break, if you will, to release or to dissolve. And that's really the better word in the context here. It could fit any of those scenarios. So if we put it this way, we would say anyone who dissolves or loosens or etc., whatever, any of the moral laws will be called what? Least. Where? In the kingdom of heaven, least in the kingdom. Now, again, remember here, this is critical. Jesus is talking to believers. He's talking to believers. Some will be considered great in his kingdom. Some will be considered least in his kingdom. And so this is an instruction for believers because where do believers go? They go to the kingdom, right? Any person who's a believer goes to the kingdom. So what is this teaching? Is this about losing salvation as some would promote? No, it's not about losing salvation at all because it's all in the kingdom, right? So it couldn't be about losing salvation. The Lord has to be talking about those who are true believers that are living in the kingdom. God's not going to kick anybody out who's a true child of his. Praise his name. Aren't you glad for that? But, and here's what Jesus is saying, there are consequences. There are consequences. And one of those is you will be called least in the kingdom of God. Now what does Jesus really mean by least in the kingdom? That's an interesting statement. Least simply means in its original language, small, but not just small, but very small. Okay? So when we're talking about language, we're talking about very small. So in context, it means very little importance, Very little importance or the least important. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you will be in heaven and you will enjoy the kingdom that I have prepared for you. And that's what Revelation teaches us, right? Welcome, a good and faithful servant, right? But if you're least, according to God's measurement, you will be someone God can't use in the kingdom or will use very little. And we know that there are rewards. And so the Lord is saying that perhaps, and I'm understanding this to be the case, that there will be least or the less rewards for that person, which is very sad, isn't it? In my mind, that's very sad. I, for one, when I get to the kingdom, want to have lots of rewards. I want to suffer through everything I can suffer through here, knowing that God is going to bless me one day. I don't want to get into the kingdom and be considered least in the kingdom. I don't want to just be like my friend who used to go to the buffet and say, Bruce, just put me in the kitchen in the back and with a fork and just let me eat all day long. And every bite I get, I'll just, the price will go down. I'll enjoy the buffet to the day I die. Okay? I don't want to go to heaven and just sit in the back and enjoy whatever is thrown to me through the door. I want to enjoy the whole thing. And I know you do as well. And so Jesus is saying, I know you do too as well. That's what the Lord is saying. Now, again, I don't know what this is going to look like. I can imagine some things in my mind. One thing would be something like I was saying with my friend, but you remember as kids when you would get in trouble and it was your turn to go on the field trip? And I remember specifically getting to go to the zoo and everybody got to go out and enjoy the zoo and run all around and everything and you were there, but you had to stay right beside the teacher the whole time? It kind of feels like that. You know, you're there, it's kind of cool, but man, the teacher's kind of got you by the hand. So you get the picture there. Like the kid who got to have recess, but had to sit beside the teacher on the bench while the other kids played. I mean, that's kind of what the assumption here is. So we get that picture from the Lord, but the Lord's not done yet. He wants to make this even fit uh, sink in deeper. And he says in verse 19... Not just the one who considers the least of these commandments, but notice this other person, this the one who teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom. Now teaching, I don't have to tell you, is serious business in the mind of the Lord. It's very serious. In fact, James chapter 3 verse 1 is a verse that often haunts me. And I'm just speaking personally here for a second. Let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur A stricter what? Judgment. We will incur a stricter judgment. Now apparently, as I said earlier, God judges on a sliding scale, if you will. And teachers are on the more difficult end of that sliding scale. And I think often this is why people say, I don't want anything to do with teaching in the church. I don't want to have anything to do with letting somebody know something about God because they understand this particular point. Well, we have to do what God has called us to do. The truth is, the truth itself comes down through teachers. God gives to us people who give us the ability to share the truth of what God has taught us in his word. And they carry an unbelievable amount of influence. I mean, look at the years gone by of the groups that have attached themselves to various leaders. Because they were... Uh, very uh, eloquent in their speech, and, and they made a lot of sense to them at the time. And so people followed them to all kinds of crazy things. And most of us are all old enough to remember the Jim Jones uh, situation and the, the Hale Bop Comet. Remember that? It's crazy things that people would, would follow into. And so it's true that teachers really do carry a significant amount of influence, both good and bad. And we want to be on the good side, right? we want to make sure that that's happening. So, our job is, as teachers, is to teach the entire counsel of God. The everything that the Lord has taught, is, uh, told us as clearly as possible and leaving nothing out. And if we're diligent to teach the moral laws, we're going to be considered great. That's what the Lord is saying here. We're going to be considered great in the kingdom. And that isn't meant to discourage keep teachers, but to just keep them sober spiritually. To say, look, if you've been given the privilege as a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or someone in a spiritual leadership role, you've been given a great task, a great godly task. And this uh, point from James is to keep you sober, to keep you aware of the the high calling that you really have. And and if I could just give you a true confession here... um, One of the reasons why I spend so many hours a week in the Word of the Lord is because of James chapter 3. I am am constantly, as I said a few moments ago, I'm constantly haunted by, and I use that in a good way, um, the pressure of what God reveals to people who teach the Word. And there are many days... And I'm just, again, this is my true confession to you. There are many days where I would just love to just go sit with people on the porch and swing my feet and and enjoy fellowship. But in the back of my mind is that knowing that Sunday's coming. And it's my role as a pastor to deliver the Word of God as clearly as possible so that you're growing and moving in the right direction because God is going to hold me greatly accountable. And so I walk and live my life in great fear and trepidation of the Spirit of the Lord because I know that one day I will stand before Him and give an account for my life before you. And so I pray that you'll forgive me for not coming to visit you more. I feel like we can do a lot of that in the kingdom. Uh, and We'll enjoy a lot of uh, uh, sandwiches there and, and, and really enjoy each other's company. And, and I try to do that. I really do. I try to find that 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 time to fit in, but it's so important that we hear the word of God clearly. To me, the greater love of anyone is to spend time in God's word to deliver it clearly and teach it clearly so that people are are truly walking with the Lord because uh, all of us have known people that have have gone away from the truth of the Lord and, and that's a lot because of the people that they're following. Isn't that not true? And you may be thinking of stories like that yourself. Um, Billy Graham made an incredible statement, as powerful an evangelist as he was. He said, if I had to do it all over again, I would preach less and I would study more. I thought that was a really profound statement from a man like that. And who doesn't want to stand before God, the God of the universe, and be considered great? Who doesn't want to do that? I think we all do simply because you obeyed his laws. Now, let me add one more thought to all of this, just to make sure that you don't get yourself off the hook. You may not be an official teacher in the church, but you're a teacher. Okay, So let's just all include ourselves as teachers here for just a minute. You are certainly a teacher. If you name the name of Christ in your life, And you've given evidence of that to anyone in some fashion or some form. You are a teacher of the things of God. In fact, everything that you do, just like me, teaches. Every word that you say teaches. Every action that you give or make is teaching someone something about you. Everything. I mean... You just watch children when they're little and they just start imitating. In fact, Jeff and I were just laughing as little Owen was out there with him in the hallway and Jeff's handing me a bulletin and little Owen's standing there going like this with the bulletin. I mean, don't think for a second that kids aren't watching. And I'm not talking about just kids. People are watching. When you profess the name Jesus, you are teaching somebody something about you and therefore by default you're teaching them about Jesus. One of the greatest and saddest illustrations, but it's so encouraging for our sake, is is Peter in Matthew 26. And you know this story well, but let me just reiterate this so we see how we really do affect others. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, verse 69, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. You get that? But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. you imagine that those encounters cost Peter? Surely it did because of we're told how he responded to it. So the simple point is, beloved, don't ever think you're not influencing someone. You are. People are watching. People are listening. And you're either teaching God as a big God and as a powerful God and can perform everything that you say he can do, or you're teaching them that he's just a wimpy God and really doesn't need to be obeyed no matter what. And they make those determinations based on what they see in your life. They'll either want to know more about this God or they're going to want to run away from that God, depending on how he's working in the background. When you say that you belong to Jesus, people listen. Now, they may not listen with their mouths back to you, but they listen. They listen with their ears and they watch with their eyes and they watch what you do. When you go to restaurants and you say that you belong to God and you don't bow your head in prayer, you think people don't notice that? When you bow your head in prayer at lunch in a restaurant, you think people notice that? You better believe they notice that. They're not going to necessarily say something, but they're going to know it. When you're at work and you say that you belong to Christ at some point in a conversation, even if it was five years ago, you don't think they're going to be watching you? Yeah, they do. They know everything about you. They listen to you and they're looking for you to acknowledge that you really are the person that you say you are. You are definitely teaching. When you're with your kids in the grocery store and all you want to do is backhand them, they probably deserve it. People are watching how you handle discipline. When you're on vacation, people want to know, oh, you're a Christian. Did you go to church? Well, no. You see, you know, I don't want to be too hard on us. I'm just simply trying to say, when we claim the name of Christ, don't think it's just the pastor who's going to be judged more severely. We're also teachers in our own ways. I think it kind of happens like this, too, that somebody we meet or get to know in our neighborhood will say, oh, You're a Christian. Nice. And where do you go to church? Oh, we go to Laurel Hill over here. Wonderful place. You should come join us. And then they watch you throughout the week and you don't act like a Christian. You don't act like you know God and you don't talk like a person that goes to church and you sound just like everybody else. What kind of God is that? You see, I think the Lord is saying to us, listen, you're either going to be least in the kingdom or you're going to be great in the kingdom. You're going to be there because I don't kick any of my children out. Once you're saved, you're saved. Amen? Praise the Lord. The question is, how are we showing and how are we living that? And that's what Jesus is really teaching here. Well, you say, I can't keep all the laws perfectly. How am I supposed to do that? No, you can't. And I can't either. And that's where grace comes in. God knows that. That's why his death paid for all our sins. Aren't you thankful for that? Every single thing. He paid for your sins even before you knew you had sins. Even before you even knew what the word was, he paid for them. When Jesus died, the penalty of our sin was paid for. We should never ever forget that. It was gone. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't say there's not going to be the removal of rewards. That's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about you're not going to get kicked out of the kingdom. When you're born again, you're born again. I've paid it all. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, watch, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. How? In us. What? What do you mean? I thought Jesus fulfilled it. He did. But then God says, because I live in you, guess who else is part of fulfilling it now? The debt's been paid. But you become the example and the testimony to the darkened world of what true life in God is. We fulfill the moral laws. We are to be the moral people of this world. We are the lights shining in the darkness. Didn't Jesus just say, we are the salt of the earth? We're the light of the world. That's who we are. We are not condemned, but we've been given great life. Listen, when we fail, we repent. We say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me from the heart. Forgive me, Lord. And then he says, okay, I forgive you. Go on. Let's get started over again. Let's pick up where we left off. No penalty. Yeah, I'll take care of rewards. You let me handle that part. That's why God doesn't tell us what the rewards are going to be. He gives us some indication, but he doesn't tell us what they're going to be. Because that's not our business. You just go on and live the life that have called you to do. Now, what we see here, I think, is it doesn't give us any rights now to disobey or deny the moral commandments. In other words, just because we fail doesn't mean that we can give up, and it doesn't mean we don't keep trying. And we make it our life's goal to live moral Righteousness, to live righteously. In fact, First Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of what? Impurity, and this is in the context of sexual sin, but just think about this, but in sanctification. That word sanctification is to be set apart. It's not salvation. There's two types of sanctification. There's the initial sanctification of being born again. God removes us from a sinful life and places his spirit in us. That's the first sanctification if you will if you want to put it that way and then we live a life of sanctification we're continually being removed from the sinful things of this world and that's what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica for God has not called us to just live in this life and live it up but no we are to be separate he's talking about the moral law here I love the way King James puts it that same verse for God has not called us to uncleanness but to holiness. To holiness. Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 1 I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you that's one of the strongest statements or words, if you will, to get somebody to do something. I implore you to walk, and that's the consistent living, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What's he saying? He's saying, Look, you've been set free from the penalty of sin. Christ has given his life for you, he's filled you with his spirit. Now, go and live the freedom that he's given you, but live it in a way that's morally righteous, that points to the truth of who God is in all of his ways. That's what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 9:24, "Do not run that those do you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may win." run that you may win don't live this life giving up don't just say i can't do it and i'm talking again in the moral law sense living out a moral code a moral ethics that god is portraying don't just say i can't do it everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things in other words this is going to take some work some energy and then they do it they do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable one listen We have a great reward waiting for us. Many rewards that I can understand from Scripture. And so God's saying, listen, you will receive those as you live this life in the righteous way. In the way that it reflects me the most. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. In other words, I've got my eye on the goal and my goal is the Scripture I box in such a way not as beating the air. In other words, I'm not just all over the place morally, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Boy, what a powerful statement. The emphasis is on each of us to live in such a way where others will say, you know what? If I have anything to say about so-and-so, I can say this, I may not even disagree agree with all of what they say, but I can say this, boy, they live what they say they believe. And that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, I know this is going to be hard. I have to control my body. i got to put constraints in my life so that I'm living the righteous standard that God has called me to live, knowing that he's really done all the work. I just live it as it comes along. And then 1 Peter 1.14 as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your what? Behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what God plans. Why do we do this? Why are we to uphold the moral law? Two reasons. One, Jesus told us to obey the laws. And number two, because there will be consequences for those who don't. Again, I for one, beloved, and I believe I know you well enough to know that you want all the blessings of the Lord. And so we're to be greatly considerate of our lives in everything that we do. Now, with all that said, I want to close this morning with um, a request. And that is, if you've been following and you hopefully you got the email that I sent you uh, concerning the, some legislation that's going to be happening and uh, being voted on in our state here concerning churches and faith-based organizations. If you didn't get that, I'll give you a copy of that. There are three bills that are on the the docket, if you will. And uh, let me just share with you some of what those are, and, and I'll bring this back to the point that I think really ties in with what Jesus is teaching us here. One of those is to target people of faith, and I'm just going to read what, what I sent you out so that you're clear on this, including churches, religious schools, and nonprofit ministries by making them, quote, places of public accommodation, unquote, and dictating their operational and employment decisions that impact fundamental tenets of their faith, particularly with regards to the couples, the concepts of sexual orientation and gender identity. Another bill adds special sexual orientation and gender identity protections into roughly 80 sections of the Virginia Code, including private employment practices, public accommodations, housing, and state contracting requirements, without adding any exemptions or protections for religious liberty, including churches, schools, and nonprofit ministries. Faith-based ministries who partner with state and local governments – to provide vital services like refugee resettlement would be forced to cease operating if they chose not to compromise their core religious tenets on marriage and sexuality. So the current status is this Wednesday, uh, the committees have put off some of these decisions until then, and um, that's when some of these decisions are going to be made to move it forward or not. So um, just a little bit more on this. Here's what's still needed concerning the private employment practices. House bill and Senate bill uh, stipulate that religious corporation, association, and educational institution or society is allowed to hire employees of the same religion. It does not permit a religious organization to require all applicants and employees to conform to the religious tenets of the organization. In other words, a church or school could consider a person's religious views when hiring them, but it would no longer be allowed to consider religious sexual orientation, gender identity, and actions taken in accordance therewith outside of work in disciplining or terminating that employee, unless our proposed language is added to these bills. That's one part of this whole thing. Now this idea of the place of public accommodation that the law is talking about, All three bills would make most churches a place of public accommodation, treating them the same as a for-profit business, thereby impacting their uh, privacy policies in sex-segregated facilities, their ability to perform and host weddings slash ceremonies, to carry out church discipline against their members, as well as a church's ability to limit its own membership and leadership roles on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, marital status, or even religion. This would also apply to most private schools, religious schools, and just about every religious nonprofit ministry. Unless our proposed language is added to clarify that private religious entities are not places of public accommodation, this provides the Attorney General the perfect tool to absolutely crush any religious organization with a physical location if they choose not to conform. And then there's one part about the housing where even colleges, Christian colleges like Liberty and Region, and they're using just some examples here, could be forced to allow same-sex couples into their marriage housing accommodations in direct conflict with their core faith tenets on marriage. Okay, now there's one more part of that. But I think the point is this. There's all kinds of legislation that comes across the tables of people. Why things come along like this? Because the heart is naturally evil, right? Right? Now, I have been the first to say to you, I think we as Christians need to be very careful that we're not just running to the next latest let's let's rally. I don't think Christians should do that unless it's something that the government is talking about mandating to the church that will directly violate the word of the Lord. And that's really what's happening here in my estimation. This is the potential for laws to be passed, and we've watched this throughout the years, but now it's really getting much more momentum for laws to be passed, it would require churches to violate Scripture. Okay, Now, we are a church who upholds disciplinary actions. Thank the Lord we've not had to do that much. We've had to do that some. But this would say we cannot do that. Well, that is a direct violation of the word of the Lord. And to just openly allow anybody, depending on how they feel about something, to join part in the things of God is also and can be a violation of the authority of the word of the Lord. And so my request to you is to pray on Wednesday at noon because I think they're meeting in the afternoon from noon on to discuss and to make some decisions about these bills, our congressmen are, okay, in the state. So I would request of you to mark your calendars, mark your phones, whatever you need to do, to just simply offer up a time of prayer for God to intervene and to make his will known, okay? I'm not calling on us to stampede the the Congress building or or to uh, do anything of of that nature. But I am saying there comes times where we have to be able to say, as God's people, we follow the word of the Lord. And that's really Jesus' point in this text. It is the authority for our lives. It's not up to us to decide what we like and what we don't like. It's up to us to decide to follow him in all things to the best that we discern it through love and compassion and tenderness and great mercy and grace. But we also need to be very clear on what we say we believe, right? Kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. We can say we're Christians and not follow the word of the Lord. And that just really becomes a blight on the kingdom of heaven. And that's not us, because we have a Heavenly Father who's judging us and who will give to us uh, the receipts of our rewards. Either they're going to be less or they're going to be great. Amen? Do you follow? And so my simple request to you is, would you please seriously pray at some point on Wednesday afternoon for our lawmakers, which, by the way, we're also commanded to pray for, right? Pray for those in authority, kings and leaders. And so we want to follow the Lord in all ways. All right, well, so what else can we say about this? God is serious about his word, and Jesus is making that very clear. I will finish up the latter part of this in verse 20 next time. So let's pray together as we close. Lord, as always, we are just so honored and so blessed to be a part of your people, to be a part of your kingdom. Lord, that you would call us and open our hearts, that we might see the truth and hear the truth, and respond to the truth in a positive way. And Lord, it's it's always our prayer that as we're studying together that if there's anyone in our midst that doesn't know you as Lord and Master, that they will understand, first of all, that you're a God who loves them, that you intimately and deeply love them, that so much so that you gave your own son and his life as a sacrifice to pay the debt that you required of all mankind. But Yet because he was God, Come in the flesh, you looked to him and you gave, uh, you absolved the penalty of all human beings who have put their trust in you and put their confidence in the sacrifice that you gave. So, Lord, you paid your own debt and we are forever and eternally grateful. And so we worship you and would ask that you'd open the hearts of the blind. Oh, Lord, we were just the same way, living life on our own without hope. Lord, when you came into us, we saw with great clarity the truth of who you are. And so we pray that for all the lost, that they may come to know you as, as Lord and Master. And Lord, for those of us who are walking with you, and those of us who are teachers of your word on a regular basis, and those of us who just live life as teachers of anyone, we pray that you'd help us to remember the seriousness with which we've been called to deliver your word. Put these things deep in our hearts, Father, that we may be convicted of them, As we hear your spirit move in us whenever we're in in our various situations throughout our day, that you may recall to us the truth of how we're to live and respond and what we're to say in those moments. So we thank you for this and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.